Welcome, everybody. This is the 510 Podcast, and I'm your host, JC. This week, we have an exciting episode. If you're unfamiliar with the show, welcome. Every week, we bring in amazing artists and musicians to talk about their journey, talk about what they're working on, and we also dive in a little bit about where the music industry is headed. That's the whole point of this podcast. So we're excited you're here. We are very excited to have Joe Wong joining us this this week. If you're unfamiliar with this multi-talented musician slash composer, if you ever watched the Netflix series Russian Doll or Master of None, or if you're a fan of Aquafina's Nora from Queens, then you're familiar with this man's music. Joe, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Super excited. I'm glad you have an album coming out, Night Creatures, we're going to talk about. But uh, for those unfamiliar with Joe Wong, let's dive in. Like, where are you from and what got you into music? Hmm. Uh, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and uh, I've loved music, uh, you know, for as long as I can remember. Uh, I started playing instruments when I was six. I started on piano and then in grade school, I had an opportunity to play violin and later clarinet. But when I was 11, I discovered drum set and that really felt like the instrument that lit the fire yeah. uh, inside of me. It felt like um, the vehicle into the larger world. That's awesome. And then, so what, but what drove you to drums? Like why, why the drums? I don't really know, but I, all I can say is the first time I sat down and played a drum set, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's similar. I, I didn't go on to be a musician, uh, after school, but during school I played, uh, the trombone and then switched to drums and I probably a similar experience where I sat down and I went, Oh yeah, this is, this is so much better. It's, it's much more fun and dynamic. So hopefully it sounds like that was your experience as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really know why uh, I connected to it more than those other instruments I mentioned earlier, um, which I still play, by the way. But for some reason, I felt it on a more visceral level. And it also felt like a way that I could connect with other people uh, independent of a school structure. So I could, you know, within a year, I was playing in bands and soon after that, writing songs. And what was your hope that this would become? Is, is, was it your, always your intent to do this as a career or, or what, what did you think this was going to lead to? Well, I did hope that I could have a career playing music because it was my favorite thing to do. And I just, I, you know, once I started playing drums, that's, it's really all I cared about and all I wanted to do. Um, and uh, that said, I didn't really know anybody who was a professional musician. So I didn't really see a pathway to it. It didn't seem like a practical career, but um, I figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> and at some point you ended up in, in the Berkeley College of Music in Boston. What was that experience like? Um, it was a great opportunity in lots of ways. Um, I had a scholarship which paid for um, part of my tuition. And um, it was a good way to kind of codify my intentions that we discussed earlier Yeah. To and um, surround myself with other people that wanted to become professional musicians. But I didn't really connect to the curriculum on a creative level and I didn't connect with the other students on a creative level. Um, 
by the time I went to music school, I'd already played in bands and toured and made albums. And um, it felt like, uh, creatively, it felt like uh, a sidestep. Uh, it's like if you had already, you know, been published in as a poet in some sort of a small indie review, and then you went back to school and learned that you actually aren't qualified to do what you had just been doing. So um, I don't know. It was a complicated uh, time for me. On the one hand, um, I got a lot of information that I still use. On the other hand, I think that there's a danger in combining academia with uh, the creative arts. And um, it felt like the type of music that I was studying there ran counter to the spirit of the institution where I was studying. But when you were there, though, did, did it give you some of the fundamentals that you still use today? Like, how important was that piece of it going through that the schooling? I don't think it was that important, to be honest. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think the thing that it did do for me is it uh, upped my discipline. You know, I, I looked around and saw the level of talent that was there. And, you know, I started practicing 12, 14 hours a day. Nice. What what was the transition for you like going from, say, playing in a band to thinking about com com composing these pieces that you now, uh, you know, you have a, an impressive resume. You have a, a pretty thorough resume here. But that, those are two different things, right? Like being in a band with maybe four instruments is different than, say, putting together an ensemble with 24 different instruments. Yeah, but they're, they're similar in lots of ways. Um, being a band member is kind of like being a film composer in that both are collaborative endeavors, especially as a drummer in a band, you are facilitating the songs usually. Um, so you are showing up trying to be the best version of yourself, but you're ultimately servicing, you know, a song that maybe you've written or maybe someone else has written and trying to elevate it. And I think as a film composer or a television composer, you're working with the filmmaker or showrunner and trying to really understand what their vision is and um, adding to that, facilitating it. Okay. So what was your, what was the first piece you put together as a composer? Um, the first film that I worked on was called The Yes Men. And uh, for the first several years of my composing career, I was working with a partner called DDA LaPlay. So the two of us were friends with the filmmakers that made this movie called The Yes Men. And we had absolutely no idea what the quote unquote right way to score the picture is. I don't think we even had picture when we were working on that first film, at least not at first. Oh man! And so we were just watching it and then thinking of something that could work with that scene, but not working to, to this picture. <laughs> and I don't know, we just kind of had this DIY way of making it work. And similar to, you know, my DIY roots of music. Sure. Um, and over the years, uh, you know, we would have revelation after revelation and, and kind of created a method of scoring that I still use now. Is there anything you would do differently 
knowing what you know now and, and, and the extensive experience you have now, like, is there anything you would do with Yes Man differently as a result? No, but if I were to take on a new project that was similar to that, I, you know, I have a whole process in place and a whole system of staying organized that I didn't have back then. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. What, what, what do you find the most challenging about the process? Well, I think the biggest challenge is the communication. Uh, at least that's the most important part of the process. Um, I often make the analogy that it's kind of like being a cook or a chef for somebody else. And so things that might be to my personal taste are not suitable to the taste of whoever's in charge. And my goal is to understand what their taste is and then make them something even better than they could imagine. But that process of understanding what the emotional needs of the show or film are and understanding where the showrunner or director is coming from is the key. And then the music kind of writes itself. Got it. Has there any been a, has there ever been a time where the, the person's taken that food back to the kitchen, so to speak? Yeah, it happens all the time. Yeah. Uh, and you have to develop thick skin and, and just see it as part of the process. Like, right. okay, well, well, what, are you allergic to? Oh, you don't like <laughs> onions? Okay, I'll take out the onions. Problem solved. Yeah, you yeah. know, rather than seeing it as an indictment uh, of your culinary skills. Got it. I love that we're sticking to that theme, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when you've been moving around quite a bit, you went back to Wisconsin. Now you're in LA. What, where do you feel your roots are that help you best connect with uh, the industry as a whole? Is it LA has the pandemic sort of thrown that out. No, I love it here. Yeah. Um, and I live in Pasadena, California, which is just outside of LA. Yep. Um, uh, I love it here. I've been here for almost a decade now. Nice. Um, but before here, I was playing in a band, a couple of bands in New York. I love it there too. And I love Milwaukee. Um, and I've also lived in Washington, DC. I mean, I, I like the fact that I've moved around a lot, um, throughout my adult life, but I like being in LA right now. I think some of the things that people do not like about it, such as the cost of living and, um, the, uh, overabundance of creative people are things that I've been able to kind of used to motivate myself to get better at what I do. I've had to work harder to make ends meet out here. And um, I really like being in a place where you can pursue your dreams without feeling pretentious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I'm, I've been there a few times. I grew up in the Bay Area, so I totally get what you're saying. And, and even though the Bay Area is a little different than L.A., but I totally get it. Where are you? Uh, I am in Portland, Oregon. We moved up here okay. about eight years ago, and I, I absolutely love it. Um, but I've been to—I love New York. I love visiting New York. I love going down to LA when I go down. Um, but it's one of those things where, uh, you know, as a family, we wanted to plant some roots somewhere. And I love the fact that we have like five rivers within six miles. So, um, I, what I wanted to ask is, uh, you know, you—you've released. Night Night Creatures is not your first album. You released a, uh, a few albums, um, but what's the Night Creatures is my first solo album, though. Got it. Okay, but what's the difference you would say between, say, your 
composery work to something that people would hear in Night Creatures? What's that fundamental difference, you think? Well, when you're composing, you are, you know, making something to suit somebody else's vision. And so that's good. And that's like a benefit and a drawback in the sense that um, that burden of deciding whether or not something's working out or not doesn't really rest on your shoulders. It's on someone else's shoulders. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's rare that you can score somebody else's film or show and um, express yourself 100%. Um, and so making a record is more of a personal expression. It's then, so it, it's becomes more of a responsibility because no one else is there to tell you if it's working or not, or if you should like it or not. <laughs> so you have to decide if it's work, if you, if you are feeling it. And, um, but ultimately it, it's the most rewarding thing I've ever done creatively. Nice. nice. Do you think there's a style that people would identify you with, with your composer work and your solo work? Or is it, like you mentioned, just sort of matching the film to the vision of the filmmaker? Well, if we're going back to our culinary (laughs) analogy, (laughs) it's like you can make a meal for somebody else and still have a style. And I, that's what I aspire towards as a composer is not necessarily for people to be able to identify that it was me, but to have a through line as far as like the integrity of the work showing up and trying to make sure that the situation is such that I can be the best version of myself when I'm working for somebody. Right. And I would hope that there's some sort of continuity between from project to project, but it's hard for me to uh, describe what that might be yeah. as the person who's, you know, writing it. That makes sense. With Night Creatures, what do you hope people get away from? Like when, when people listen to this album, which is beautiful, by the way, um, what do people, what do you hope that people walk away with? Um, I don't know. I, 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 uh, I think, you know, the focus was on first <laughs> keeping my own, neuroses at bay and making something that I was proud of and that I liked. And I I've done that. And now I, I just want other people to enjoy it as much as I do. Yeah. How, how much does that neurosis play in, in when you're, you know, creating this album? Cause I would imagine I've, I've talked to, we've talked to so many artists and, and the one thing uh, that we've asked, especially artists that have say, you know, a hit on the radio or something like that, and we'll ask, you know, if there's one thing you could change about that song, what would it be? And most say they're they're pretty happy with it. But every now and then we get an artist that's like, yeah, I hate playing that song. Uh, I wish we would have done it this way, but it is what it is, and people are happy with it. Is there any – have you ever had that happen to you where, you know, it's, it's out in the, in, the, in the wild, so to speak, and people are consuming it, but, boy, if you did it this way, it'd be – you would feel like it was better? I think my neurosis manifests in different ways or it has in the past in the sense that I've, I've written and recorded other albums worth of material and never released it because I wasn't happy with it. Got it. Um, but with this one, um, you know, there are certain things that I feel that I'm already better at. I mean, the, there's a certain freedom to making your first statement as a solo artist. And this is the first thing that I've sung on 
Um, it's the first time I've sung in front of people, um, been in front of the stage. Uh, so there's a lot of newness to it and that's exciting to me. It's bringing me back to the feelings that I had when I was first playing in bands, feelings that I'd kind of gotten disconnected from, but the fear that <laughs> I'm headed towards, uh, by making this has brought me back to a really uh, vital place. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I've been practicing singing as if I'm going to go on tour, even though my tours have been postponed and I could, I could sing the album better than when I recorded it. But I also know that as a fan of music that sometimes I will like, I like the flaws in other people's records. It yeah. makes it more human to me and more relatable. So I think everything is uh, as it should be. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear. Speaking of, of the pandemic and our inability to, to tour or, or do live shows right now, why, why pick now to release the album? Why wait? Why not wait until you can tour on it? What was the thinking about, you know, let's just get it out there. Well, it was originally supposed to be released in May. Okay. Um, and it was finished in January. Oh, wow. So, uh, it was, yeah, it was finished and it was mastered in January. Wow. Um, so I just felt like it, I needed to put it out into the world and, um, I'm trying to operate from an abundance mindset. And I know that I'm writing another album that I will be able to tour, um, presumably if we get a vaccine next year. And so I'd rather have two albums of material to pull from once I can tour. Um, another reason why we put it out is the first song on the album, Dreams Wash Away, uh, appeared in a TV show that I scored called The Midnight Gospel. So we wanted to at least put that song out before that show um, came out. And it was a good thing to do. It was a smart thing to do because um, thousands and thousands of people shazammed it the first day it came out and they were, it gave my album a boost right That's away. Awesome. Yeah. As far as awareness. That's great. That's awesome, man. What but I, uh, I, I interviewed Phil Collins once and his advice was to have two albums out before you tour. So I'll, I'm just following Phil's advice. It's good advice to follow. If there's anybody to like follow their advice, Phil's Phil's the right one. <laughs> <laughs> he's done some things that have been successful um let's let's talk about the music industry right now you know before covid it was in this interesting transition uh, a lot of people were going out on tour because you know uh you can't really make a whole lot of money streaming music these days so bands were going out on tour constantly to just continue to to bring awareness and connect with fans um what do you think covid's gonna do how do you think it's gonna change post COVID. I don't know that it will change all that much because if you think about the scope of history and the fact that there seems to be a pandemic every hundred years or so, mm -hmm. uh, and that the Spanish flu, the most recent kind of major pandemic, which was a hundred years ago, didn't, uh, didn't halt live music permanently. Maybe it won't change that much. But on the other hand, maybe this is a time when people can 
reflect on how they might want to approach the album cycle differently. Um, and uh, I guess we have more technology available than they did obviously when the Spanish flu was prevalent. Mm -hmm. So maybe things will head more online, but I, I think that would be kind of a tragedy uh, because I think music is the antidote, live music is the antidote to, um, you know, tech companies mediating all of our human interactions. I don't think it's healthy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to that end, how much is tech going to play in, in the future of, of the music industry? I mean, we've seen in the last 20 years, we we've gone from, you know, CDs to MP3s to digital music services. What's the, what's the next plateau? I mean, a lot of people are buying records again, but what's that? What do you think that next sort of media people will be gravitating towards? I don't know. AI songs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I hope not, but maybe who, who knows? Uh, the worst thing I, and I'll, I'll just say this out loud. The worst thing I saw and I, it made me pessimistic about the future of the music industry is I went to uh, South by Southwest last year in Austin and in the exhibition hall, they have all these startups, right? And one of the startups was air DJ. I shit you not, this person was like moving his hands and being a DJ. And I thought, there's somebody with a you know, a record DJ is turning over in his crate. Like there's no way this is not nails on a chalkboard to a, a DJ. So you know It's hard to know. I mean it's it's just if you think about it, uh you know, lots of jazz musicians I know were turning over when record DJs came out mm. and we're sampling them. Yeah. And I think to a certain extent, it's just natural that, you know, innovation has detractors. Uh, but on the other hand, I, I think there is probably some validity to the argument that like the experience, the musical experience has become attenuated. Mm. You know, if you think about pre pre-radio which wasn't that long ago the only way that you could hear music was to either gather around the family piano and sing together or the family guitar or go out and see somebody perform which is kind of the most pure way of experiencing music in some ways but then um the phonograph came out and you could have your own personal relationship with an artist that wasn't possible before you could you had this portable magical disc that you could listen to at will and then that became even you know more prevalent with tapes and walkman and and, and cds uh but on the other hand and, and that's all great and, and the fact that now you don't have to go through a snarky record clerk to find out about any music that's ever been recorded is great. But on the other hand, I think um, people are less connected to music. You know, before I composed, I was um, working as a music teacher and some kids don't even know the names of the artists that they like or the songs that they like. And so there's just less, I mean, it's just different. It's different. I, I, uh, I can't, uh, I can't see what's going to happen in the future, but I do think that um, in general, music is 
devalued now, like quite literally financially Mm -hmm. in an untenable way, probably. And culturally, it's almost just like it's content, which is the artistic equivalent as sawdust, you know, Mm -hmm. it's uh, yeah, it's a hard thing to answer because to your point, uh, art is subjective. And music, to your point, has become all-consuming. And when you have something that's all-consuming, how do you place value on it, right? If it's so accessible so easily, you can have an Apple Music account and and have as much music as you want, which devalues everything uh, in that in that realm. And it's um, it's an interesting problem, and and one I I haven't seen anybody have a really good idea of, of where we're headed back. I, we talked to um, Ryan from Yellow Card and he said, we may be going back to the way of singles. If you remember the 40, oh, we already are. Right? I mean, we're already back to singles. Yeah. It's been that way since the iTunes store launched, you know, 20 years ago or whatever yeah. it was, um, which is fine. I mean, if you think about pre LP days, it was all about 45s and jukeboxes and stuff. Yeah. But I, now it's almost like the attention span is shorter than a single. Um, you know, people's attention span is like 15 seconds. <laughs> I, I just miss when we had albums that told stories. Some of the best albums in my mind are those that um, that have that tell a story, right? And then I think if well, we still have that, right? In some regards, but I mean, to your point, I mean, the attention span is so low that who has the ability to consume an entire album that tells a story? Uh, sure. I mean, but I guess you could make the same argument for why people don't have the attention span to go and sit through a three hour opera, which is nothing right. but story. Right. Yeah. And it's like people devoted their lives to to that craft, and yep. that art form. And it's underappreciated. So, so, I mean, there's always been there, that argument can always be made. And, you know, even in the days of LPs, yeah. there were people bemoaning that kids these days can't uh, appreciate <laughs> opera or symphonies. Yeah. We have to do the obligatory get off my lawn, right? Um, so tell us about what's what's in store for you in the future. You have obviously the the album coming out, but what what do you what do you have on the horizon? Um, yeah, the album's coming out on September 18th. Uh, I've made a few videos for it which will come out. I just finished shooting one um monday with fred armison directing um in this weird tiled mansion (laughs) in the hollywood (laughs) hills it's actually more of a temple than a mansion nice um and then uh i'm still planning some touring for next year and um i'm scoring um two new TV shows right now. And then there are a few shows that I've worked on that are coming back. Wow. Wow. It's really fascinating. Your background is, is really intriguing. It's, it's pretty, it's, it's unique, especially you don't find this a whole lot where it's a touring musician. Somebody that's come from a band is now composer. I mean, there's, and the only one I can think of off the top of my head, maybe Danny Elfman, right? Danny Elfman was in more well, than transitioned. I would say most of the top composers these days come from that background yeah. whether it's trent reznor danny elfman as you sure. said yeah yeah from oingo boingo mika levy who had a thing called mika chu and she's great john bryan um even hans zimmer comes from that band background i yeah. mean he produced a damned record um mark mothersbaugh of course came from devo 
Um, but it, it seems like that is kind of the new paradigm, you know, ever since around the time that Danny Elfman emerged. Mm -hmm. So about 30 years ago. Um, and it makes sense. Lots of people want to get off the road at some point and want to find something that's creative, but allows them to stay in one place and composing is great for that. Yeah. And it seems like lots of people are trying to get into it now and there's more um, programming being produced than ever before. Um, but I think the thing that's weird about me is that I'm wanting to get back on the road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Danny has famously said he's, there's no way I'm going to us getting back to my very, very sad. I, I'm so disappointed in that, but uh, yeah, that's, that's true. I, I, I didn't really think about that, but, uh, and, and what do you, what do you prefer more? Do you prefer to stay on the road or you prefer staying home and, and doing the composery work or is it just a labor of love on both, on both sides? Um, I, at this point, I'm most excited about my record and making another record and playing those songs live, but I like having the balance of working with other people. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, just as a human being, I like the balance of making my own creative statements, but then also being there to help other people with their creative statements it's a good place to be. Yeah. And I think my, my next goal is to be able to spend half of my time on my own projects and half of my time with great collaborators. Nice. Nice. Well, Joe, I, and then I, I wanted to mention your, your podcast, you have your own podcast called the trap set. Tell people a little bit about that. The trap set is a podcast that I started about six years ago. And the idea was to talk to only drummers, but not to talk about the craft of drumming really at all. It was just um, the fact that I'm a drummer and my guest was a drummer um, allowed us a jumping off point into more substantial conversations about yeah. life. And um, I came up with the idea when I was on tour with Marnie Stern and I was getting a little bit burnt out um, on music at the time. And so I was listening to lots of podcasts in the van rather than um, music. And I really liked shows like early WTF with Mark Marin and how he would just clearly put his neuroses on display and use it to fuel his conversations with other comics. And I liked the fact that even if they didn't know each other personally, that they had this instant familiarity because they were both in the same racket. And um, at the end of the tour with Marnie, uh, we were invited to a, an SNL taping backstage. And um, I ran into the who ended up, uh, the person who ended up being the first guest on my show, Brendan Canty, who was the drummer for Fugazi and Rites of Spring. And I was in a dark place in my life at the time. And after the SNL taping, we went to a party and I kind of, cornered Brendan and asked him for advice, life advice. Um, and then it occurred to me that it, our conversation could have made a great podcast. So um, the next time he was in LA, about six months later, we recorded the first episode of my show. And Fugazi was a band that was huge to me, especially as a teenager. Um, 
and the, you know not not just for the music but for their ethos and for their method of operating and their diy um philosophy but another artist that was huge for me before that when i was about four or five years old was michael jackson so <laughs> i thought it would be interesting to get Indugu chancellor who was incredible drummer that played on thriller as the second guest on the show and kind of have those as tent poles you know the most punk of the punk and the poppiest of the pop and then explore everything in between and so the show really turned into more of like a sociological study <laughs> than um a podcast about actually playing the drums yeah. but you know over the course of the first few years we had everybody from clyde stubblefield and jabo starks who were James Brown's drummers, to Bernard Purdy, to Sheila E, to um, Sly Dunbar from Sly and Robbie, um, to uh, Billy Cobham, Clem Burke, wow. Gina Shock of the Go-Go's, um, Patty Schemmel from Hole, just like a great collection of people from different backgrounds, different generations. I had, um, a woman who's I think still alive at 106 on uh, who played in an all girl review with her wow. sisters, um, you know, in the thirties, forties um, and had retired by the seventies. <laughs> so it was just a great way of meeting and engaging with people. And like, what, like I was saying before, I think too much of our lives are mediated by tech. And it was a return to just being able to have substantial conversations with people in person. Um, we've been doing it over FaceTime ever since COVID hit, but up until then it was all only in person. Yeah. And, um, and then about a year and a half ago, after we hit 200 episodes, we opened it up to non-drummers. So, during quarantine, I've talked to people like Flea, um, Sharon Van Etten, Billy Gibbons, uh, et cetera. And it's, it's been great to connect with all those people too. What do you, what's, what's your favorite interview that you've done? I, I, I can, you know, there's some that I really, we did an episode last week where we kind of, cause the, the 510 used to be a, a radio show and we did it for, I don't know, 10 years. But and there's all these conversations that I I just really enjoyed having. But what was you, what was one of your favorite? I really think they're all my favorite. I, I get something important out of all of them. But uh, if you're asking me for one from the last few years, let's see. I think that one of the most uplifting conversations I had was with Brian Blade, mm. uh, who's, in my opinion the greatest drummer of his generation. Um, but the thing that I liked about that conversation is that it dispelled the myth of the troubled fucked up genius mm -hmm. and kind of put forth this alternative of joyful genius. Um, I think that there's this narrative that in order to have something relevant to say, you have to be damaged or broken as a person. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, obviously lots of great art does come from pain, but it doesn't need to be manufactured, <laughs> you know, right. and it, and it can, 
and it doesn't, you don't need to sit in it for your entire life either. And Brian is proof positive. I love it. That's great. Um, so where, where can people find the trap set? Um, it's on all of the streaming platforms aside from Spotify. Okay. And it's on our website, thetrapset.net. And Night Creatures, where can people pick that up? Um, there are already some singles on all of the streaming platforms. And then if you want to buy an LP, you can go to joewong.bigcartel.com. Got it. And uh, there's LP pre-orders. Joe, Joe, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I, I love your background. Come back anytime. And this has been a, a, a fun conversation. Wait, so what's your favorite oh, interview you've ever oh, done? Oh, we're going to do that. Okay. Um, you know, we were talking about this last week. I, the, my favorite one that I think, because I grew up in the 90s listening to hip hop. So like the far side, hieroglyphics, souls of mischief. We had Uncle Amani from the far side. And we did the interview. They were about to do a show with Souls of Mischief in San Francisco. And usually when we were doing artist interviews, they used to be like 15 or 20 minutes because we did them backstage either before or after the show. And so they were really just sort of like, tell me what you're working on. And then we just would talk about the future of, of the music industry. Uncle Amani, we did his interview at his hotel room. And he, I kid you not, he talked for an hour and 17 minutes. Didn't shut up. And it was like a behind the music of the far side. So everything you can think of, like how they started as a dance troupe, how they split up with Fat Lip and then got back together, and then now Slim Kid Trey's not in it. Like everything that was all in there was in that episode. And you can still find it on the510.com, but um, that was probably the most memorable. But we've had George Clinton on, on the show. We had Henry Rollins, Margaret Cho, uh, Kat Von D. We've, so we've kind of branched out. We've opened the aperture from just musicians to people that have something really riveting to say. Yeah. And I, I guess the moral of the story is it's always better to do con these con kind of kind of conversations, not at a venue, not before someone's supposed to go on stage. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it, well, I mean the, the, one of the really good ones was um, we did George Clinton after he did a three hour set and it was right before his 70th birthday in Oakland at Yoshi's. And I don't know, he spent, 30 minutes talking. He was so humble, so gracious, just so cool to be around. And here was this guy that, you know, we, we're, our podcast isn't massive, right? This guy was giving of his time so willingly. And this is the guy that created an entire genre, right? The only reason we know funk is because George Clinton Funkadelic and, and Parliament. And so um, it's, it was just, I love this part of the job because I get to talk to people like yourself who are in the creative process constantly and are in the weeds and understand the nuances of where the music industry is headed. And so these, these conversations are always fascinating to me. Well, thanks for doing this. No, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I, I love it. And Go Pick Up Night Creatures comes out uh, on Decca Records September, remind me again. 18th. 18th. Uh, Joe Wong, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. All right, take care, buddy.